0: Hello and welcome to the Reformation podcast. I'm Gerhard Steuben. Um, It's just me today, Jake, and I thought it would be good to take um, another break from our Monarchs of England series and just give me... A chance to talk about my own research on late medieval and early modern Reformation era Christianity. And so, if you're not aware, um, I'm a PhD student at Baylor University here in Waco, Texas, um, and I study the Reformation. And so, it's the end of my first year in the program, my first year of coursework, and by this time, people typically are zeroing in on their dissertation topic, which will, um, which might carry them through an entire academic career. Um, and so as I've been thinking about my own dissertation and my own um, future academic career, um, sometime in the early to middle of last semester, um, I started to get interested in how Christians write about Islam. Um, I originally thought I was going to maybe work on like Calvin in Islam, because I think John Calvin is just wonderful and I love to read him, Um, but as the time has gone by, I have sort of floated through um, Reformation-era Christianity um, and looked for what was most interesting related to Islam, and I'll talk a little bit about what I may have settled on, this is always provisional. Um, in a little bit, um, but it became very clear to me through last semester and is solidified into this semester um, that my research is going to focus on how Christians in the late medieval and early modern era actually really just the early modern era, wrote about Islam and so not necessarily about Islam itself in the era but how Christians um, wrote about and thought about and talked about Islam um, in the era So this um, is obviously an extremely important topic um, in our current context, in our world, so uh, even right now as I'm recording um, this episode, there's the issue with um, the US uh, politician Ilhan Omar and people uh, not trusting her, specifically because she's Muslim, Um, the President And other uh, Republicans mostly, but also some Democrats um, saying hateful and violent um, things about her, not trusting her because of her religion. Um, So there's this anti, there's this Islam is anti the West, whatever the West means, sentiment out there. I mean, this really animates at least half of our um, political world right now, Um, at least half of our populace in this country and that's a huge and scary thing and and then just personally and as like someone who is deeply formed by um christianity who's a deeply religious person and the relationship of christianity to islam is one that's uh, fascinating just from a religion angle just from a um just from a theological angle it's um Christianity and Islam have these strange connections that um, neither religion have to just about any other religion uh, throughout the world. It's almost like they're cousins with this um, with this secret language back and forth. And so that's why I'm personally interested um, in that topic and why I'm pursuing that for my research. But this episode is not just going to be about me and what I'm... Uh, interested in what it's going to be is um, the research I've done so far um, and presenting that in a way that helps you, the listener understand how Christianity and Islam uh, related to one another from the onset of Islam in the 7th century and up through my the end of this podcast's era in the 16th century So what's the drink pairing for today you might ask? Uh, well, it's not alcohol, because we're talking about Islam, so I am drinking coffee, and that's it. So I won't talk about the very beginnings of um, Islam um, with the Prophet Muhammad and his initial, um, his initial revelations and uh, conquests and whatnot. Like within itself, those topics will come up eventually as later writers talk about them, um, but I'll leave that to historians of Islam itself. Um, but for our purposes, the story of Christianity and Islam begins um, as after the death of Muhammad, the Islamic community begins to spread um, throughout the Middle East and then throughout the world. And by not long after, they will have spread all the way across North Africa, and into Spain, um, they'll spread and start taking pieces of what used to be um, the Byzantine Empire, or what was at the time the Byzantine Empire, that uh, the Muslims uh, were, uh, took that area, area and essentially crushed the Byzantines um, later on through the Ottoman Turks. They took all of the um, you know, that big landmass between Africa and um, Asia proper, and they started to expand east um, as well. <clears throat> so the um, Islamic powers, there were a few different ones and they did not always agree, um, but the Islamic powers did really spread throughout the world incredibly quickly and subjugated a huge portion of the most important parts of the world at the time. Um, the most technologically and culturally advanced um, civilizations at the time. And so uh, the Islamic world really did become the center of world power for a very large stretch of human history. And something that... Um, so the normal picture is that Islam comes, subjugates the Christians, the Christians are pissed to be subjugated. subjugated. Um, and that, you know, sometimes sometimes happens. Um, But one story that is often forgotten um, is the fact that just like Islam is not unified, Christianity throughout history and even today is not a unified uh, system of thought or a unified Christian community. Just like today, we have um, Catholics and Protestants and the Orthodox, and even within Protestantism, we have groups like the Methodists, the Baptists, and there's These internal divisions within Christianity, just like now, um, there were internal divisions within Christianity back in the 7th and 8th and 9th centuries, and uh, things were a lot harder on minority positions um, back then. So beginning with Augustine and um, his conflict with the Donatists, the the church had a um, steadily growing policy of persecuting Uh, heretics, people who didn't affirm the majority tenets of the faith, um, things like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, Um, and uh, as history goes on and the church clarifies its theological positions more and more and more, um, there become more dissenting groups because every time the church clarifies its position, um, a group that used to be mainstream says that's not what we believe and we've always believed, um, and so we're out and like I said the church was relatively persecutorial um, back then and so they didn't just essentially allow these um, minority positions to survive and do their own um, ecclesial and mission work uh, they usually persecuted them and uh, this changes in different times in different places it's sometimes present sometimes not the severity obviously differs from time and place um, but in general Orthodox Christianity in the late first millennium um, tended to persecute heretics pretty strongly. Um, And so, when the Islamic powers come in, and let's say we're in Egypt, a historically Christian uh, place uh, since the very beginnings of Christianity, it flourished there um, by the third century, it was extremely important, maybe the most important center of Christianity. So Egypt, uh, for a long time, has been Orthodox Christian, um, Orthodox with a small O. It's been mainstream Christian. um, And by the end of the first millennium, there's a number of these heretical groups for them to persecute, um, especially people who uh, reject the Council of Chalcedon. Um, So as the Islamic powers... um, start to sweep through the area and they take North Africa where Egypt is um, they uh, dethrone the Christian um, the Christian rulers who are persecuting these heretical groups and they put all Christians on a politically equal playing field um, and so they in essence elevated the heretical group, To a permissible religion um, and denigrated the um, mainstream Orthodox position down to one among many acceptable religious policies or religious positions. So um, the Muslim rulers of Egypt were much uh, softer, much more gentle, much more accepting and permissive um, of these uh, minor. Christian positions than the official Orthodox Christian powers were and, but in order to understand that you need to know about Islam's uh, traditional uh, approach policy towards um, other religions so within Islam there are uh, essentially three categories There's the one true faith, um, the faith taught by Muhammad and witnessed in the Bible and Torah, um, and that is Islam. Islam is the pure collection, uh, the pure maybe analysis of the words of God in the Quran. Uh, And then is interpreted by later texts um, like the Hadith um, and the Islamic, uh, essentially scholastics. But um, so, this first category is the pure category that's Islam. And then there's a second category um, that is other monotheists. And here is meant uh, Jews and Christians. Uh, These are what's referred to as people of the book or Al Al Kitab, um, which is just to say that um, these communities have received a real revelation from God. Um, and have really responded to that God with obedience and worship. Um, Importantly, Jews and Christians um, only worship the single one God, Allah, and um, they have revered the prophets that Allah has sent to them. Uh, For the Jews, that was Moses. For the Christians, that was Jesus. Um, and for the Arabians uh, the fi- the Arabians get the final culmination um, of prophecy which is Muhammad and so these people, this people of the book the al-al-kitab um, have a special place in uh, Muslim legislation they are the al al or the people of the covenant um, so when um This goes back into Muhammad's life and him being sheltered by Christians, especially Um, I believe it was an Ethiopian kingdom that initially protected him. Um, The traditionally Christian Ethiopian kingdom uh, protected Muhammad. Um, Based on Muhammad's relationship with uh, mostly Christian powers and the theological connections between Christianity and Islam and Judaism, uh, Jews and Christians... Have a middle position in Islamic society. They are allowed um, and protected as religious minorities. Um, They are never, or should never be at least, forced to convert to Islam um, under threat of violence. That um, is explicit um, in the Quran. Um, The Jews and Christians uh, are afforded these privileges of security and survival and not being persecuted by Muslims um, in exchange, uh, mostly just for uh, tax. So like in uh, most places throughout the world, through history, uh, religion is supported through tax. Um, and so like if you go to Germany today, uh, some of your tax dollars will go to support um, you know, various religions in Germany I think you can choose on your tax receipt which you want it to go to um, if that's not true, that's not really my field so whatever um, but throughout most of human history um, the government has been the sponsor of religion um, and that is paid for through people's taxes and the same is true of the Islamic world um, in the era we're talking about and even to today, I believe. Um, so the people of the book um, are allowed a place in Muslim society if they uh, pay essentially a religious tax. No one gets out of paying taxes, not in a Christian kingdom and not in an Islamic kingdom, um, and so the Christians are afforded this, possi- uh, this privilege of um, religious protection and security in exchange for essentially paying the equivalent to tithing um, to the government. That and um, Christians and Jews, like all citizens, um, have to participate in society. And so Christians and Jews uh, were made to do military service like other Muslim members of society. And so by... Fulfilling these two obligations, um, paying the religious tax, the jizya, and um, participating in military service, um, Christians were afforded religious freedom and protection. Now, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture because um, the jizya, uh, the religious tax on uh, people of the book, was intended uh, as a, a social stigma. Um we'll get in a minute to how Christians enforced basically the same social stigma on Muslims at the same time so this is this should not be taken as a look how bad Muslims are um, and if anyone does you've radically missed the point um, but it's still historically true that um, the Jizya tax was intended not only to uh, further the um, sustenance of society and pay for the government's um, activities, but also was intended to um, symbolize Christians' uh, subservient status to Muslims. Um, their Christianity's subservient status to Islam as well. Um, and in fact, there were some that uh, Christian tribes um, in Africa um, as the Muslim conquest is happening, who negotiate with uh, the particular caliph the um, right to um, not pay the jizya, but to pay instead a double tax that was not interpreted as socially stigmatizing. Um, that is, in order to get out of the humiliation and um, social stigma of paying the um, subjugation tax, um, the these uh, African Christian tribes chose to pay double what they were required to. But like I said, um, this will. I will talk about this more later. Um, Christians did is pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, and often did much worse things. So that is um, sort of the early history of Christianity and Islam. The second um, key figure in this, in this history of how Christians related to Islam in the medieval and early modern eras is uh, one of the—cut that break— is John of Damascus, who is an incredibly important figure in a lot of ways. So John of Damascus lived um, from the 7th to the 8th centuries, immediately after the um, death of Muhammad. And he lived in Syria, like I said, as a theologian and priest and government official. And He is the earliest writer that I'm aware of, the earliest Christian writer um, who writes about the theory of how Christianity and Islam relate. John Damascus uh, wrote in Greek, um, which is, was the traditional Christian language in the East at the time, um, at least the, the western half of the East, the eastern half of the East, uh, wrote in Syriac. But John wrote in Greek, um, so it was mostly going to be read by Christians. And so when John, um, who, again, like I said, was a high-ranking official in the uh, Muslim um, caliphate at the time, was um, worked closely and intimately with Muslims and presumably had a good relationship with them since he was a high-ranking official, uh, John wrote about Islam in his uh, larger book on heresies. Um, so throughout Christian history, um, Christian theologians have been cataloging heresies and um, trying to show what are the wrong things to say about Jesus and God um, in order to promote the right perspective. The first one that I'm aware of is um, by a guy named Hippolytus, who is an extremely early, um, early Christian figure. And this trend continues all the way through... Um, I mean, up through the modern era, uh, you have books at Barnes and Nobles that you can buy right now, if Barnes and Noble still exists, um, about collections of Christian heresies. So, uh, John wrote about Islam um, in On Heresies, and he called it the uh, the worship of the Hagarites, the Thraskeia Tone Hagarone, and um, this was. So notice what he's done there. First, he's called Islam a heresy, and then he's called it uh, the worship of uh, the Hagarites. This is the, a reference to the story, uh, the traditional story of um, Islamic origins, where the son of Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael, um, gives birth to the Arabian people, um, which is where Muhammad comes out of. Uh, John is saying both that, Christ, uh, that Islam is a heresy of Christianity and um, and the particular religious practices of the Arabian peoples now what did John mean when he called Islam a heresy so in the ancient um, up through the medieval worlds um, and into the early modern era though this starts to change not too far into the modern era There were two basic categories of religion. There were, um, there was, I mean, other than the the true religion, which is whatever religion we happen to agree with, um, the two categories of false religion were heresy and heathenism or paganism. A heresy was uh, someone who believes the true religion. But gets some essential or important uh, aspects of it wrong. So, um, an Arian is a heretic because he believes in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, but he doesn't get the relationship between the Son and the uh, Spirit, or the Son and the Father, correct. Um, He is a heretic because he denigrates the Son um, with reference to the Father. The other category is uh, paganism, and this is people who are just flat wrong. Um, So this might most technically apply to uh, the worship of maybe the natural gods, the gods who are personifications of nature, um, like Zeus and Athena and Demeter um, in the West, or Isis and Osiris um, and the gods of the East, or... um, the like the ancestor spirits um, of the Far East, or the um, sort of natural gods of rain and war in Africa. So the most traditionally applies to those um, pre monotheistic, pre codified religion um, systems of belief and thought, um, but. As it's used by um, theologians through the medieval and early modern eras it can apply to anything which is not basically accurate right like uh, a heresy is basically true but with some important mistakes paganism is any religion that is not even close to being true So when John of Damascus calls Islam a heresy rather than a paganism, um, rather than heathenism, what he's saying is that Islam is mostly true, but it gets the wrong, um, it has some wrong ideas mostly about Jesus. And it's mostly true because it is monotheistic, it's oriented to the one God, the Father, and it reveres Jesus as a prophet, but it's a heresy according to John of Damascus because it uh, doesn't understand that Jesus not only is a prophet, but is also divine. So that was John Damascus's perspective that Christianity is a heresy um, rather than paganism. And that is going to remain the majority position uh, through church history up to the modern era. Um, for most of History, Christians believe that Islam is a part of the Christian tradition and one which gets most things right, um, but at the same time um, is heretical mostly because it doesn't believe that Jesus is divine. So, uh, moving on through history, we come to this fascinating letter um, from pope gregory the seventh to uh, the western um, the western ruler al-nasir pope gregory the seventh was an extremely important pope on the list of maybe the top most influential popes of all time um, you'd probably put gregory the seventh at least in the top three um, you could argue that he's the most important through history and um, the really key element in uh, Gregory VII's papacy is what we remember as the Gr- Gregorian Reform, um, and this was Gregory VII's attempt uh, to bring order um, and structure and spiritual depth um, to the church throughout Western Europe. Um, so... Without giving you too much of the history, um, as the antique era, um, transitioned into the early medieval era, there was a political disintegration all throughout Europe. Um, and things went from essentially the unified and structured Roman empire to, um, various essentially tribal kingdoms, um, spread throughout, uh, Europe, um. From England to what would become Hungary, um, the political situation had disintegrated pretty completely. And what you had were uh, competing warlords, um, raising forces to steal land from one another. So part of this disintegration uh, was, came alongside a disintegration of church structure. Um, so if you compare say Nicaea in 325 uh, the church was so structured that every bishop throughout the world could get together and make most bishops throughout the world could get together um, and make a decision about Christology and the church's official position um, that's because the church had so, the an amount of freedom, an amount of structure um, inherent in its life now in the, let's say, 900s in uh, Western Europe, um, there was no such structure. And in fact, most churches were built by individual landlords um, for the peasants who worked their land um, and their families. And so most uh, priests served at Churches that were directly responsible to a layman, um, to a lay noble, um, and so weren't really responsible to the Church in Rome or the um, Church councils. Um, so this uh, this caused um, a number of practices to rise up in the Church that people like Gregory the Seventh, who was before he became. Uh, the pope was a monk and we're not very happy with especially the growth of uh, clerical marriage just priests being allowed to be married by the 900s by the year 1000 and um, most i don't you know we don't have numbers for this but i'd be willing to bet that most priests throughout Christendom were married um and had sons and passed their uh, churches off to their sons like in a sort of apprentice. Uh, your friend's dad is a butcher, so his son will become a butcher too, and he'll learn that skill from his father. Your other friend's son is a blacksmith, um, he'll be a blacksmith after present- apprenticing with his father. But you're a priest, or your dad's a priest, so you'll become a priest after you apprentice with your father. And that's just sort of how the church worked in the late first millennium in Western Europe. Gregory Seventh was determined to end that because he and a lot of other people believed um, that sexual contact uh, made someone impure, and impure hands shouldn't handle the Holy Eucharist, shouldn't handle the true body and blood of Christ. Um, because if someone who is defiled through sexual conflict, uh, contact uh, offers the Eucharist, uh, then God doesn't accept it because it's no longer a pure and holy sacrifice. And so in order to combat the issue of clerical marriage, Gregory VII um, essentially forced his own will um, upon the church in the West. Uh, and this is the first time in church history when the popes were able to start exercising the power that they claimed they had Uh, popes had claimed to be the head of the church um, since at least the fourth century but it's not until gregory the seventh who uh, was active right around the turn of the first millennium that the church started to actually exercise this authority and what um gregory did was he 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 claims to strip um justification for any married clergy to be serving as a priest he claims um to excommunicate any noble who didn't turn the authority of his church over to um the pope in rome he uh put entire nations under interdict, which means uh, nationwide excommunication, um, if they refused to um, submit to uh, Gregory's plan to take um, control of the churches backed from the civil authorities. Um, And like I said, the whole reason for this is that um, with the church being under the civil authorities, this was causing um, priests to get married and pass their churches on to their sons through inheritance. When the church was under the true spiritual authority that it should be under, Gregory assumed, um, then the um then the priests would be obedient to the church's demand uh, that they be that they be celibate. Um, since they no longer had noble protectors, allowing them to um, have kids and whatnot. So this turned Gregory into one of the most important figures in church history because he took that power in order to deal with perceived crisis, um, but the popes never gave that power back. And so Gregory is the turning point um, towards papal infallibility. Um, In about 300 years, We'll get a document that really affirms papal infallibility, and of course, it's not until the 19th century that it's made an official dogma of the Catholic Church. Um, But by Gregory the Seventh's time, it was pretty well understood um, that the Pope uh, considered himself as an infallible, uncontradictable authority in Christianity. It's important for you to know just how influential Gregory the Seventh was in traditional church history. To put this next um, bit about his life into perspective, Gregory the Seventh wasn't only a uh, important political or important theological leader, um, but also had a number of important um, diplomatic connections throughout the world. And part of his diplomatic work is um, was relations with Muslim uh, kingdoms. For me, the most interesting thing about Gregory VII is um, not necessarily what he did in Western Europe, which is interesting and extremely important historically, um, but the way he wrote to a Muslim ruler named An-Nasir. An-Nasir and uh, Pope Gregory VII had a congenial relationship, um, and they respected each other and um, listened to each other. An-Nasir uh, made some great overtures to Gregory Seventh, inc- including releasing some capt- captives and requesting that the Pope ordain a Christian bishop for his Christian subjects. Um, and Gregory Seventh wrote um, this glowing, uh, wonderful letter uh, to An-Nasir. And remember, this is the 11th century um, by maybe the most stringent Catholic Pope um, through history. And he writes this letter to Anasir, and it would be controversial even today. Um, I'll just read a couple sections of it. He wrote, um, For Almighty God, who wills that all men be saved and none to perish, approves nothing in us more fully than that, after his love for God, a man should love his fellow man, and that uh, what he would not have done to himself He should not do to anyone else. Such charity as this, we and you owe to our own more particularly than to other people's. For we believe and confess one God, albeit in a different way, and we daily praise and revere him as the creator creator of the ages and the governor of the world. For as the apostle says, he is our peace who makes both one. Uh, This is... A fascinating thing that Gregory has done. So, he, like John, thinks of Christians and Muslims as essentially of the same unit, uh, but he does so with more warmth and more vigor um, and more humanity than even John did. He doesn't call them heretics, he doesn't call them wrong. He says, We worship the one God in diverse ways. And later on um, he says something else that's pretty telling. He says, quote, for God knows that we love you sincerely to the honor of God, and that we desire your welfare and prosperity in the present life and in that to come, and we beseech with our heart and lips that after long continuance in this life, God will bring you into the blessedness of the bosom of the most holy patriarch Abraham. Uh, Gregory the Seventh, this stringent monastic pope um, is writing to a muslim ruler and saying we are brothers under the worship of the one true god who we worship in diverse forms and i pray and hope um, that when you die you and i will meet the same god and worship the same god together for someone writing in the 11th century that is a fascinatingly. Um, not just tolerant, but accepting and warm perspective. And this um, is sort of the motif of studying Christian-Islamic relations um, throughout history. It is true that most uh, Christians writing about Islam write about it in a negative way, uh, but there's these strange, fascinating, and uh, just sort of heartwarming things um, moments throughout church history in which Christians recognize the common humanity and common worship of God of Muslims, and Muslims do similarly to Christians. So moving along, um, it doesn't take long for things to take a pretty heavy nosedive. Um, so Pope Gregory Seventh is an 11th century pope, and I believe it's only... Uh, eight years after that letter um, that Pope Urban II calls for crusade um, so this is obviously the low point of Christian-Muslim relations throughout the um, medieval period so what's happening with the crusade? Uh, so a traditional Christian practice of piety is uh, pilgrimage in the era and Christians um, believe that by traveling to the location where the relics of a saint are held, and they will receive temporal and spiritual blessing from God. So maybe that's healing, and um, maybe that's uh, forgiveness of sins. There's all sorts of reasons that you might go on a pilgrimage, and of course the most important and uh, Prestigious and uh, effective pilgrimage is the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, after the Muslim conquests, um, it was much more complicated to travel to Jerusalem, which was held by Muslims, um, to do pilgrimage. And a number of popes, um, Urban II being the key figure, um, believed that. It was an offense to God that the holy site of Jerusalem, the uh, most important pilgrimage site, was held by unclean hands um, by, uh, I don't even know if Urban II would have called them heretics or pagans. He writes about it viciously. Uh, In his speeches to promote the crusade, Urban II uh, talked about how not only do Muslims slaughter Christians indiscriminately, And uh, do all sorts of other inhuman things to them. Uh, They also profane the relics um, of the saints. Uh, They make Jerusalem, the site of the Lord's birth, or the site of the Lord's death, um, impure by their unclean hands. It was a really vicious um, sort of misunderstanding of Muslims. And by preaching this all throughout Europe, especially in France, um, Urban II was able to raise up a pan-european army to go and take back jerusalem um, from the muslims now this uh is beset with all sorts of difficulties they um it's difficult for them to find transportation through ships um, as the crusading armies march from europe to the middle east they um, perform numerous um, mob um, mass murders of Jews Um, they are cordially accepted but really hated by the Byzantine emperor Um, it was just an all-around bad scene Um, but nevertheless when the crusading armies make it all the way to Jerusalem they do um, and they do end up um, taking Jerusalem back from the Muslim rulers and establishing essentially uh, the kingdom of Israel um, which was a western style um, kingdom uh, located in the Holy Land now you can go elsewhere and learn about the crusades if you want more information on that um, but it's that's enough for how the crusades themselves happened except for a note on jihad and um, so after the defeat um, in the First Crusade, um, Muslim theologians got together and started talking about how, um, how to defend against the threat of the invading Christian armies. And they um, did so by defining what exactly is meant through um, by the term jihad and how and when it applies to muslim holy wars and what the key um, thing in jihad the key um, the key idea in jihad is that it's a holy war in defense um, of other muslims, it's in defense of religion Um, and so in the book of jihad um, a contemporary, um, like contemporary back then um, reflection on the nature of jihad you know while the crusades are raging what uh, this author decides is that a jihad um, can only be defensive it's only technically a jihad if the christians come and invade the middle east um, and continue to pose a threat um, and continue to um, hold lands that they've taken uh, so the key element is that jihad is defensive this is explicitly contrasted in the book of jihad with uh, wars of muslim expansion so when uh, muslim rulers um, invaded the byzantium the eastern uh, roman empire or when they invaded um, the southern part of italy and the author says this is not jihad these are wars um, of, you know political and religious expansion um, but they can't be called jihad because jihad is only refers to j- defensive wars um, the importance of this for modern thinking about geopolitical issues can't be understated. Um, if a Muslim claims jihad they're claiming to be the defensive actor in a war um, and so are claiming to be responding to Western aggression. So there's a lot more to talk about, and I had a lot more planned, uh, but we're going to have to split this episode up into two parts, um, just because in order to give the context and the history in a full and compelling way, um, I've had to expand somewhat on my notes. And so uh, we'll consider this first episode um, the first half of Christian-Muslim relations history, um, and this will push us um, and allow us To transition to the late medieval and early modern eras in another episode um, coming soon. Um, And this is actually a really good turning place because the part, uh, the Crusades um, on the one hand, and Fourth Lateran, which I'll talk about next time, are maybe like a joint pivot point for um, both church history in general and the history of Christian-Muslim relations. Um, the early and high medieval uh, relation uh, Christian-Muslim relations that I talked about in this episode um, and there's so much more to talk about, like how Thomas Aquinas was influenced by Muslims, how um, Muslims preserved uh, mathematical and scientific treatises that the Christian West forgot. Um, but this episode um, dealt with hopefully in a brief survey form that first half of the era And the next episode we'll talk about key issues in um, christian muslim relations going forward um, that push through even um, in their effects even reach to um, our own era um, and so be looking for that coming episode soon and i will see you then <laughs>